The only way a tolerant society or community or group stays tolerant is to be intolerant of intolerance. That's the paradox of tolerance. This is the Living Prophets Podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Maxmeister. This time, I'm exploring ideas on tolerance. Tolerance has many different interpretations. There are plenty of churches out there that preach about tolerance as being a bad thing, that a church that is too tolerant is openly allowing sin to happen. And on the other hand, there are liberal religious churches that are talking about tolerance as a stepping stone on the path towards mercy and justice and forgiveness. And all of these things fall on a spectrum of how to react to the things in the world that we do not endorse. Here are several examples of conservative Christian churches and how they talk about tolerance in various sermons. When you say you need to tolerate this person, then what we discover is what our culture is actually asking. I want you to approve of what I'm doing. Tolerate the way I think by approving with it. And don't tell me I'm wrong because that's intolerance. You Christians, and myself as well, we are commanded by God to judge. Yeah, this word, judge not, doesn't mean that you don't judge. Jesus says in John 7, verse 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Tolerance, the world we're living in, is the no judgment zone. They don't want you to say anything. Say nothing, do nothing. Let us just continue to go on as we please. You live your life, we'll live our lives, and say nothing to us. They were arguing to write the word tolerance into the Constitution and into the Bill of Rights instead of freedom. And the early Virginia Baptists said, we don't want tolerance at all because if we have religious tolerance, then we're just at the whim of whoever might be in power that year. At one point, they did not tolerate a Baptist congregation in Tappahannock, Virginia. And when a man named John Waller preached at Old Beale, they locked him up in jail. Because he didn't have a license from the state to preach. That's religious tolerance for you. And tolerance, in some ways, may even come from a posture of entitlement and arrogance. Like, well, we control this town, or we control this government, or we control this country, so we will tolerate you who have different opinions from us, or who look different from us, or who were born in a different country than us. Tolerance and tolerating mean little more than that we reluctantly and resentfully allow people to deviate from whatever it is we might believe to be best. That's why the early Baptists fought for religious freedom. And here is Rob Hardy's of All Souls Church in D.C. talking about mercy on the spectrum of tolerance. Now, whenever I preach a sermon on mercy or forgiveness or grace... I always hear from folks afterwards who say, Rob, mercy is all well and good, but what about justice? What about holding folks accountable for their 
for their failings and their imperfections, for having done wrong? This is a critical question. And for me, at least, it's one of the most challenging and heart-wrenching struggles of the spiritual life. Exactly how we can balance these two sacred values of justice and mercy. And here is Mike Moran of the Denver Unitarian Society talking about the limits of tolerance and how we must maintain intolerance for intolerance in order to have a tolerant and inclusive community. I had a phone call with a woman once who told me she had left her church of eight years when someone in that congregation had been asked by the church leadership to resign their membership and leave. She cried to me, how can they call themselves a church and close their doors to someone? We have an ideal, and it's powerful, that a congregation is a beloved community, profoundly, even radically inclusive. Because we believe in diversity, in the power of love, and acceptance and tolerance of one another, even those radically different from ourselves. More fundamentalist or legally dogmatic churches actually have very little difficulty excluding someone from their communities, right? You're saved or you're not. You believe or you don't. You're in or you're out. But it's different for us. So what are the limits of community? How do we define what those limits are and who gets to define them? And what about forgiveness? And how does a community based on tolerance respond to the intolerable? I could tell you a good dozen stories of Unitarian Universalist communities where a misunderstanding of tolerance or an unwillingness to stand up for the overall good of the community led to congregations deeply divided, internally crippled, even nearly destroyed. The truth is these things happen all the time. I know of a medium-sized church, and by that I mean around 400 members, where on the third day of a minister's sabbatical, she received a letter signed by 17 long-term members of the congregation. They told her to use her time off to look for a new job because she would not be welcomed back. The point is that those people stepped way outside their authority of the democratic decision-making process of that congregation. I know of another church where the same person would stand up every week during their public shared joys and concerns and give about a five-minute laundry list of all her woes and health issues and the things she'd read in the paper the previous week. And the congregation tolerated this week after week because no one like just dared to take her aside and say that wasn't cool. Which, of course, didn't stop them from complaining about her behind her back. I was at a school board meeting once in Colorado Springs. They were evaluating a grade school curriculum that taught evolution. And one of the school board members, who happened to be a religious conservative, who knew he would be outvoted, suggested in this very friendly way that the board make this particular decision based on consensus. And when they all agreed to do that, that individual then proceeded to stonewall that issue for over a year 
preventing a decision from being made while working outside to have more religious fundamentalists elected to the school board. These are instances of how communities become disempowered. The paradox of tolerance is a phrase that was coined by the philosopher Karl Popper. The paradox of tolerance says that any society, community, or group unable or unwilling to have limits on what they will tolerate will eventually be taken over by intolerance. The only way a tolerant society or community or group stays tolerant is to be intolerant of intolerance. That's the paradox of tolerance. And if they don't do that, the tolerant will end up silenced and the intolerant will win. Do not we see this playing out every day in our nation and in our world? We have people and organizations on the far right spewing truly hateful, racist, victim-blaming rhetoric. And we have many in the middle and the moderate left utterly unsure of how to respond. Many of them arguing that we have to listen to and understand our fellow citizens. Now, Karl Popper is long dead, but I believe he would say, at least in this country, tolerance has already lost. Once upon a time, we did a participatory worship here. We handed everyone in the congregation on a Sunday morning a small ball of clay with instructions to make something that symbolized the church and the community to them. And then everyone was invited to come and place their tiny sculpture on a table at the front and say what it was their symbol was, what they had created. And there were flowers and chalices and hands and hearts and other kinds of wonderful things. But I will never forget Tom Congdon, who placed a flattened bit of clay on the table and said he had tried to make a bowl to hold everyone, and he wanted to be inclusive, so he tried to make it big. And the bigger he made it, the more it fell apart. In our reading this morning, the prophet Micah wrestles with this very question. Now you have to understand that that Micah is one of the great social justice crusaders of the Bible. When the people asked Micah the question, well, what then does God require of us? Well, Micah had an interesting response. Three things. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Now, of course, for Micah, justice comes first. Justice places great responsibilities on us and holds us accountable to a high high bar. That's where Micah begins. But in his very next breath, Micah also invites us to love mercy. 
I think Micah realized that he didn't want to live in a world where everyone walked around all righteous and calling one another out. So he said, God calls us to love mercy. And for good measure, he adds, walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. It's a pretty good recipe, I'd say, for right living. speaking of having convictions, foundational ones, and yet accepting people who have convictions diametrically opposed to ours and to act on those convictions. That is toleration. It is not agreement. It is allowing others to be and to speak with their own words. It's all very easy to be tolerant if we have no passion of our own. I'm okay, you're okay. That's not tolerance, that's, that's indifference. That's really meaning, think what you like, I, I could care less. Jesus was unable to care less. He was possessed of an incredible ability to be open to the people around him. He saw them. He really saw them. The man born blind. The paralytic who had occupied the same spot at the pool of Bethsaida for 38 years. The lepers on the edges of the towns and villages. He heard their cries and he listened to their pain. For many of his contemporaries, these people were all background wallpaper. At best, an opportunity to give alms and score points with God. At worst, pariahs, the touching of whom would render them unclean. Always, the least of these were hemmed in by countless and multiplying boundaries and borders, the trespassing of which was not tolerated. Jesus tolerated all this to the breaking point. He tolerated without limits. And here we realize that Jesus became famous, or rather infamous, not simply for his tolerance, but for his love. Jesus' passion finally transcended toleration to become incarnate love. This is a love which could be seen and felt. Jesus demanded the same practice of love from any and all who would be his disciples. Love your enemies. Do good to them that persecute you. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' generation crucified him for the same reason our generation would crucify him. He was killed because our human intolerance perceived his message of love and tolerance as a threat. But Jesus' acceptance of the unacceptable, his forgiveness of the unforgivable, his 
fellowship with the pariahs, all in the name of Yahweh's Messiah. And it was too much to handle for any and all who would not believe in him. When your neighbor does something that threatens the possibility of tolerance and neighborliness, then something must be done. The person is to be respected and cared for, yet the action needs to be accounted for and not ignored. Jesus was especially intolerant of systemic, structural injustice, that which crushed the human soul unto despair. He would not abide it. But he had all the time in the world for Nicodemus, Simon the Pharisee in whose house he dined, Zacchaeus the tax collector. Some recognized their sin, but others did not. Jesus gave himself to all, and to all who sought him, Jesus offered forgiveness and healing. We as Christians know that we can be passionate about our faith. It is the fierce passion shown by the prophets of Israel. They called it justice. The prophet Micah declares, He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In the New Testament, this justice is incarnated as agape, as love which pours itself out, and all the evil in the world cannot quench it, for it is eternal and flows from the very throne of God. That is our faith. So from the liberal end to the conservative end of the spectrum, all of these different clippings of people talking about tolerance seem to have a few common threads among them. What I've been able to pull out is, number one, tolerance ends where harm begins. And I think everyone seems to agree at that. The second one is that there's an underlying covenant or social contract within a community that is responsible for dictating whether tolerance is expected. If you're a citizen, then this comes across as a belief in the Constitution. The Constitution is a founding document, and in principle they support what it holds. Or if you're a religious community, as the Unitarians are, that has a covenant, and at its core the covenant says, we believe in the right for every person's own search for the truth. The crux of understanding is in understanding how different people may come to define harm differently. From my earliest examples, from the more conservative end, people have this view of the world that they're in a Christian community, closed off from society, and that society is full of threats to them. 
the dominant culture of tolerance is hurting the world more than what their righteous attitude would bring and save it from. On the other end, harm from a liberal perspective seems to involve seeing a person who has been the victim of intolerance, a person whose greatest desire is to be who they are. They see outsiders imposing rules upon these individuals, whether it's LGBTQ or people from a different faith or a different origin of the world, and they see them as being threatened by the intolerant, dominant culture that has the power, the political power. But for my taste, if you want to understand what harm is, you must first come to grips with your own brokenness in your soul and recognize the brokenness in the person who's being intolerant. If you can recognize your own brokenness, you can then understand the right definition of harm and how to balance mercy and tolerance. Tolerance really hits home when you're trying to raise your four-year-old. I have a child, and these days he has a hard time expressing his feelings, and so he starts hitting us, hitting his mommy, hitting his daddy. What do we do in that time? What I do have are the three things. Make sure that no harm is done. We have a covenant. Nobody he knows ever hits anyone. He's blessed in that sense. That's the social contract. But what really helps is remembering these emotions are part of being broken and finding one's way back. We are all broken, and I want to be part of a community that holds up our brokenness rather than our righteousness. To think of someone as broken makes it easier to have mercy while still seeking justice than it is for someone to be seen as wrong. That's my story. Till next time, you've been listening to the Living Prophets podcast. You can find us on iTunes. Please like us and tell your friends. 